Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 188th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is arguably the biggest star in Hollywood. A brilliant actress, known for both indies like 2010's Winter's Bone, 2012's Silver Linings Playbook, 2013's American Hustle, and 2015's Joy, and big studio films, including those that comprise the X-Men and Hunger Games franchises. She's also a critic's darling, with a remarkable track record at the box office and four Oscar nominations and one Oscar to her name, all by the ripe old age of 27, Jennifer Lawrence. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by a true Hollywood insider, a veteran public relations and marketing executive who eventually became the president of the Motion Picture Group at Paramount, then president of marketing and distribution at Columbia, and eventually vice chairman at that studio. He later was the 30th person elected president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, serving in that capacity from 2005 through 2009, a highly consequential period for the organization. And most recently, he was an executive producer of Brett Burns and Bob Sarles' Oscar-eligible documentary feature, Bang! The Burt Burns Story, a terrific look back at one of the most influential and criminally forgotten songwriters and record producers in music history. Most importantly, he's a true gentleman at a time when they seem hard to come by in this town. Sid Gannis, thank you for joining me. Uh, well, I'm happy to be here, Scott. Thank you very much. What a nice introduction. A true gentleman, yeah, <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Not all of the time. So you started out in the 60s in this business. I, I was reading that the first film, I think, was Cleopatra, so you really got thrown <laughs> in the deep end. <laughs> I was working at 20th Century Fox. It was my was my second job in the business. Yes. My first job was as an office boy yeah. elsewhere. Okay. But sure enough, Cleopatra was being made, filmed, <laughs> right. in Rome, right. and every day there were headlines. The press came to you on that one, right? The press came to us on that one. <laughs> You've worked on a lot of major movies after that, All the President's Men, in which, fun fact, you also make a cameo. Brief appearance. <laughs> uh, the Empire Strikes Back, The Return of the Jedi, the first two Indiana Jones films. I read, and to kind of connect this all to the present, that in 1993, you had an interesting experience when you were president for marketing and distribution at Columbia. It was a situation similar to the one that Disney just faced with the L.A. Times, where, to catch people up, Disney was upset with a story that the L.A. Times wrote about their relationship with Anaheim. And so, in retaliation, Disney banned the L.A. Times from attending its advanced screenings. That led to a standoff, which Disney eventually blinked first. In 1993, according to something I dug up, 
you're at Columbia and a Times reporter who's now an awards columnist, Jeffrey Wells, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> wrote about a bad test screening of Last Action Hero, except the screening did not ever happen. So you guys banned Jeffrey Wells from advanced screenings. What do you remember of that period and how it resolved itself? And then what do you make of the whole Disney LA Times standoff? Well, I can imagine <laughs> Disney getting absolutely apoplectic mm-hmm. about what the LA Times wrote. And back in the day, 1993, was it? Jeffrey Wells (laughs) wrote with great detail about a screening of Last Action Hero that never happened. It just didn't happen. You know, it wasn't that it happened and it wasn't as bad as Jeffrey Wells said. It just didn't happen. (laughs) So, of course, we were outraged and went running down. Mark Gill, a good guy in this business, and I went running down to the LA Times, and we didn't say we're going to ban you from uh, all our screenings. We said, we're pulling all our advertising. And in those days, newspaper advertising was a big part of the expenditure for movies. We said, we're pulling our advertising. I must say, in thinking about it, like last week when Disney did what it did, I realized, I realized right afterwards that I forgot to tell our bosses, our big bosses, that we were running down to the Times to pull our advertising. They were a little not so happy about the whole thing. How did it all resolve itself? It resolved itself with us shaking hands, yeah. you know. And actually, the best thing that happened is that we did meet with the publisher in those days, Mr. Coffey, I believe his name was, and we talked a little bit, and we talked about, you know, what we thought was an absurd thing for them to do to print something like that. And now when you see what happened with Disney here, it seemed inevitable that they would have to blink, especially as all of these other media outlets and then critics organizations and people lined up saying, if you're not going to let LA Times critics into your advanced screenings, we're not going to go either. And it just was unsustainable. Clever, I must say, on the part of all those critics associations. Clever. It was an overreaction by Disney, an overreaction. We all knew that. Maybe they overreacted on purpose. Maybe they didn't overreact. Maybe they had planned that reaction, calculated that reaction just to make a point. And I get it. And, you know, I can only think about good old Bob Iger, one of the great humanists in this business scratching his head and saying, hey, was that the right thing to do? Well, I wondered if he was even aware of the fact that they had implemented the ban. I'm sure he's married to the dean of the USC School of Communications and Journalism. (laughs) I'm sure that would not have been very well regarded in his home. So anyway, after, you know, you started out as a public relations and marketing guy, you became an overall executive at Paramount and Columbia. Uh I wondered at that time, before you were running the Academy, uh-huh. what did Academy Awards mean to your studio and your movies in those days? How hard did you go after well, them? Well, there were two ways of looking at it, one from the business point of view and one from the personal point of view. From the business point of view, what an Academy Award, a, a big Academy Award, a best picture, a best actor, you know, one of the major ones, meant money in the bank, or at least it suggested that as a result of winning an Oscar, the film was going to do more business, especially one of the major awards. Now, when you were running Paramount, that was late 80s, right? Uh That was pre-Weinstein era insanity of campaigning. Yes. But there were still forms of campaigning in those days, right? Of course there were forms of campaigning. (laughs) What do you think? We're going to sit back and say, oh, I hope people vote for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> doesn't quite work that way, no matter how good you film it. You got it? 
Keep it out there. So what were the main tactics in those days, aside from just screening the hell out of a movie? Well, we screened the hell out of the movies and tried to get as much publicity about the movies, you know, in print and on television as we could. But then there was another tactic, especially when the video cassette, yes, the streeters, video cassette, yeah. remember video cassettes, yeah, I do. Scott, I do. <laughs> became uh, the mode of viewing movies. The studios would send their video cassettes out to the Academy members. Now, the list of Academy members. In those days, I think it was 6,000. Now it's 8,000, is that right? Something like that. Something like that. uh, 6,000 names are private, but somehow or other, the studios do get their hands on them, and they send the video cassette to the members. The only thing is, it gets a little competitive when you send video cassettes. (laughs) At Columbia, one year, we had... It must have been a dozen films that we thought were potentially eligible for one for one award or another. So what did we do? We built a box, a big wooden <laughs> box, Scott, and popped in the ten or eight video cassettes into that box and shipped them to everybody. <laughs> to every Academy member. God knows what it cost. Yeah. And you know, this tremendous Item came in the mail. Referred to as the coffin, right? The coffin. In fact, rest his soul, Buddy Hackett wrote to us and said, "Thank you very much. I have all my cassettes, and thanks for the box. I'm going to have them put my ashes in there one day." (laughs) You raise an interesting point, though, about the membership list being kept private, and I've always wondered why that is. I've been told it was because the Academy does not want its members to be lobbied or solicited. But is that not happening? Anyway, and aren't most members quite happy to receive their screeners and other yes, outreach? It, it's happening anyway. But it's not that they want to be private. It's just that they don't want to have their information public. Right. But There's a difference na- between the But what the about two. Their, just the names? We know the names are published. These names days, of Academy when they, the, now, yeah. like, probably since you were president, I think. Yeah, since I was president. But, but yeah. that's only the newly yeah. invited members. Yeah. Most of these guys have been there for a long time. Yeah. You know, somehow or other, these lists emerge, I must say. As a marketing guy and a public relations guy, I sit in board meetings as a member of the board of the Academy before I became president, and there was that list (laughs) (laughs) in front of me, the golden list. And I I thought to myself, I hope nobody from the management of the Academy is listening to this. Do I slip that in my pocket (laughs) on the way? Well, I didn't slip it in my pocket. Well, why in 2005 having already been a member of the Academy's Board of Governors for a number of years, did you decide to run for president? And how glad are you that you're not president right now? (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the beginning, when you introduced me, you kind of went through what I've done in this business. And you said something very flattering about it. It's not that you know, I've done such great stuff in this business, just that I've been around it for a long time. And I would say to you that in all those years, with all the stuff, that I've done over those years. Being the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was the crowning glory. And I didn't realize it was going to be the crowning glory. I wanted to do it because I knew the Academy. I I love movies. You know, it's the old story, Scott. I love movies more than anything. I know, because I see you at Telluride every year. You go there (laughs) not to promote a movie, but to To see movies. movies. So there I was at the head of what I loved more than anything else. What I didn't know is that it does come with honor and responsibility, big responsibility. What I gravitated to when I was president was the whole international world of the academy. And it was ignored, but it was ignored because we just didn't know how to 
get to anybody in France, you know, uh, on some kind of logical good right. basis. We started working on that, and now the new management of the academy is well on their way to making international membership a really important part of what they're doing. And so. just to note the new leadership, the CEO, Don Hudson, was hired when you were still the president. Uh-huh. And then the new president, John, uh, John Bailey. Bailey, is somebody that you who you served alongside on the board for many Great. years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Served on the board with him. Turns out he's sensational. You know, all of my predecessors were terrific. I mean, you know, in their own way. Hawk was great. Good old Tom Sherrick, bless his soul. He was terrific, and he did his thing. And Cheryl Boone Isaacs, in a pivotal moment in the life of the Academy, took the bull by the horns and did a really good work in the whole world that we now call diversity. And John Bailey steps in now, another movie lover, and of course, an artist of the highest caliber, cinematographer of great, great movies. Towards the end of your four years as the president, you presided over a major change, which was the expansion of the Best Picture Oscar category from a guaranteed five to a guaranteed ten. It's since come to this wishy-washiness of somewhere between five or ten, depending on the votes. But I just wonder what precipitated that. I know that was the year of The Dark Knight being snubbed. Was it a direct response? Well, direct in the sense that we all talked about it. Yes, Yes, direct. We said, and... You know, the Dark Knight is out there. We knew that the Dark Knight was going to uh, qualify had there been more than five. Mm -hmm. So we talked about it, and I must say we took our own industry by surprise. Certainly the journalists who came to a press conference that morning. And our thinking was we didn't want to get into that thing where we had to do 10. So we changed that rule a little bit. We altered that rule. I think it's a good idea. I wish you would have kept it at 10 because I think who loses in that situation? You have more movies nominated, more stars there. There's always at least 10 worthy well, movies. I th- But yeah. I mean, I, I applaud that you, because that broke with, in a way it broke with tradition, because I don't think since Casablanca they had had more than five. But prior, it actually was a return to tradition, because in the earliest days of the Academy, it was yeah. more than yes. five. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. even more than 10. Yes. Yeah. So anyway. One, an a couple of times more than 10, yeah. I think. Yeah. Have you had any favorites this year? The Shape of Water has to be one of the most interesting films of this year and many other years, and totally entertaining, and totally far out, and totally esoteric and weird and wonderful, with performances that were magical. Recently, I saw I, Tanya, and that means Margot Robbie. Who you gave one of her first breaks in Pan Am. Nancy, actually. Because you guys were producers. This was the ABC drama series was going to be Mad Men of the Sky. Uh-huh. Mad Men of the Skies, a uh, good series. But Margot Robbie gives a performance as uh, Tanya Harding. That's quite amazing. And then also we saw three billboards over Ebbing, where is it? Ebbing. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That's their, they got, it's a long title. It's a yeah. long title. Yeah. It doesn't matter because no. it's, you know, it's three billboards. Yeah. And there we have Francis McDormand. Great. Uh, I mean, these are these are absolutely stellar performances. You watch a lot of foreign language movies too, right? I watch as many foreign language movies as I can. And this year, we saw a great Lebanese movie called The Insult mm-hmm. by a director whose first name is Ziad, and I don't even know his yeah, second yeah, name. Yeah. But what a thrilling piece of work from Lebanon. So we come to the elephant in the room at the moment, which is the sexual abuse stuff that started coming out with Harvey, who you've 
interacted with as a person in this business for a long time, and it's now spread everywhere else. I just wonder what your reaction to that was. Did you have any inkling that he was a, a, a we knew he was a, a kind of a bully, but to this magnitude? No, of course not. Uh, at least, of course not for me. Others say, mm-hmm. well, look, I knew all along that he was an abuser. I didn't, and I've known him for 35 years. No, I knew he was a bully, pushed people around, and he was big, and he kind of was ornery around people. But no, I didn't know he was a bad guy. But I think that what it has done is it's opened all our eyes. I tell you, I did not know that Harvey Weinstein was a bad guy. Now I know that Harvey Weinstein, and I know there are other bad guys, women and men, men mostly, powerful men, but not only powerful men. I just want this to be a new beginning. And I really do think that it might very well be a new beginning in our society and beyond. Well, I know you also care a lot about the Academy, and I wonder what you make of their response to this. They kicked out Harvey, expelled him, only the second person ever expelled. But in so doing, I wonder if you think they fully consider the ramifications here, because we still have among the membership... Bill Cosby, Roman Polanski, a whole lot of other sexual predators who have gone through the justice system to one extent or another, whereas Harvey hasn't yet. And I'm not saying Harvey shouldn't have been severely punished, but now the Academy, you know, they kind of find themselves in this position where they have to create a code of conduct. But is it going to be retroactive? Is it only going to apply going forward? Do we have hearings? Like, So where, where do they go? It's a tough thing to do. The Academy is set out on a path that's going to be, I think, really difficult to accomplish, but maybe not. Maybe they know how to do it. That's why, Scott, I said when you asked yes. about uh, whether this was uh, a couple of days before yes. he was expelled from the Academy, you asked whether he should be expelled from the Academy. And I said, kicked out. He's already kicked out, meaning that you don't have to kick him out. He's out. He's out of the industry. He's out. And, you know, what particular good does it do us to officially take him off and the And that wasn't because you loved having Harvey in the organization. It was because you realized it could open up a can of worms. Totally. Yeah. I was concerned about all the rest of us. If you're the president today uh-huh. and you could advise the board about what to do going forward, how would you now deal with this? Well, I can answer that by telling you what I've actually just heard. I think they asked uh, the Academy, asked mm-hmm. Kathy Kennedy, well-known colleague of ours, you know. Fellow uh, Lucasfilm person. Fellow Lucasfilm person, person that I personally know for many, many years. But that's beside the point. She's a person with great stature in our, yes. in our industry. She's the one who's putting together a group, but the group is not just the Academy group. It's other organizations around our business, mm-hmm. internationally as well to talk about this. So it's not going to be the Academy's charge to suggest what should be done. It's going to be a group of us in the business. And I think that's a smart way to approach it. I probably wouldn't have gone that far myself. I just would have... uh, You mean with Harvey? Yeah, with Harvey. Expelling. Yeah. Let's turn to your personal producing, which is what you've focused on a lot since you ended your tenure as president of the Academy. You've personally produced through your company out of the blue entertainment and a collected group of movies some very popular comedies big daddy deuce bigelow male gigolo mr deeds and then also a great dramatic movie akila and the bee uh-huh. or as one, i was reading one magazine's interview with you and i think they misheard something that you said or whatever so they were called the movie not in any 
facetious way, they thought this is what you said, tequila and the bean. <laughs> so I thought that was tequila great. And tequila the bean. and the bean. <laughs> now you've independently gone to work as an executive producer on this movie called Bang the Burt Burns Story, which I mentioned in your intro. And I just wonder if you can talk about how familiar you were with Burt Burns before that and why this movie was one that you got involved with. Never heard of him when I got involved. But my friend Brooks Arthur came to me and said, hey, Burt Burns' son, and I said, whose son? Burt Burns' son, whose name is Brett, and Burt Burns' daughter Cassandra are doing a documentary about their father's life. They're not even music guys. I mean, they yes, they, they administer the catalog and all that, but they're not in show business directly. And I don't know, Brooks said to me, you know, exactly what's happening in the business. What about you? Would you come on? I said, okay, tell me about this guy, Burt Burns. And he did. And once he told me. Well, can you tell us a little bit about who Burt Burns was? He was a songwriter in New York City, a Jewish kid from the Bronx Mm -hmm. who loved music and had a personal problem in that he had a rheumatic heart you know, diagnosed as a little kid in those days, diagnosed as a little kid with a rheumatic heart, who loved the music and hung around until he was able to penetrate Atlantic Records, it turns out, and uh, worked his way up to become one of their top songwriters of the era. And the era was the 1960s. What were some of the songs that he's responsible for? Oh, little ditties like Hang On Sloopy. Right. and Twist and Shout, and a beautiful song called Peace of My Heart about his heart. He was talking about his defective heart. And he was this white guy from the Bronx writing songs for artists who were all colors, all shapes, all Mm -hmm. sizes, Mm -hmm. and made a gigantic impression. But part of the reason we don't know who he is is that he died from a bad heart Mm -hmm. at the ripe old age of 30, I think it was 36. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating documentary. I saw it when I was on the documentary jury at the Boulder International Film Festival back in March, and I was seeing a ton of documentaries. This one really stood out, so I'm glad we could chat about it. And I thank you for coming in, Sid Gannis. You're welcome. And now for my conversation with Jennifer Lawrence, which took place in a suite at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, and during which her beloved chihuahua, Pippi, patrolled the room, which had been stocked with Slim Jims and Doritos prior to our arrival. This was an unusually special conversation for me, not only because Lawrence currently sits atop Hollywood's A-list, but also because I feel like I've seen, up close, how she got there. I first interviewed her back in October 2010, shortly after the release of Winter's Bone, for which she would go on to receive her first Oscar nomination. I subsequently crossed paths with her at a million different screenings and Q&As and award ceremonies and even a party on the beach at the Cannes Film Festival. And, like everyone else, I was constantly impressed by her work up on the big screen and by the way she's handled her life off of it. She has been through a lot over the seven years since I first interviewed her. Good, bad, and ugly. And though she may now be America's sweetheart, J-Law, and the biggest movie star on the planet, I was relieved to find that she's still the same lovely, self-deprecating person that she was back then, and I was touched that she opened up to the extent that she did about almost everything that's happened in between. Over the course of our conversation, Lawrence and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a girl from Kentucky with no formal acting training wound up being discovered in New York and moving out to Hollywood, where she worked first on TV and then in films, What it was like for her during the heady period between early 2010 and early 2013 when, in quick succession, 
Winter's Bone won Sundance's Grand Jury Prize. Lawrence became the second youngest person to that point ever to receive a Best Actress Oscar nomination. Her decision to accept the role of Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, an adaptation of Suzanne Collins' best-selling novel, made her world famous. And then, for her work in David O. Russell's Silver Linings Playbook, she became the second youngest person ever to win the Best Actress Oscar. How, since then, she has picked projects, prepares to act in them, and feels about them after they're done, including the very few that haven't clicked, like 2014's Serena and 2016's Passengers. How she has handled the worst parts of Celebrity, like losing her anonymity and being tracked around the clock by paparazzi, and discovered its best parts, like being able to brighten the spirits of people who have experienced real hardships. She emotionally recounts one such encounter. What it was like to find herself caught up, through no fault of her own, in some of the biggest scandals to impact Hollywood this century, from the hacking of her iPhone that resulted in the widespread dissemination of nude photos, to the hacking of Sony Pictures' employees' emails that revealed she was not being paid the same as her male co-stars, to the recent revelations about Harvey Weinstein, with whom she interacted not infrequently back when he was distributing Silver Linings Playbook, why she agreed to star in, and how she interprets Mother, the Darren Aronofsky-written and directed movie that has proven to be the most divisive with which she's ever been associated, confounding audiences to the extent that they gave it an F cinema score, but also winning from critics rave reviews for her performance, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jen, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. We always begin with very basics. Where were you born and raised? What did your parents do for a living? I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. My dad was a construction worker, and my mom started a children's day camp. And were movies or TV a big part of your life as a kid? Any favorite, really influential things? Huge. I mean, I just, I loved everything. I loved all TV. Movies, we only had, like, Uncle Buck, Home Alone, those were like the only movies we really had, so I just watched them on repeat. Waterboy, <laughs> um, but TV, I loved. I love Lucy, SpongeBob SquarePants, Lizzie McGuire. Right. <laughs> I just loved anything. And is it correct? I was trying to read up as far back as I could on you. It sounds like the first acting would have been in church. Yeah, I don't know why my mom told that story, <laughs> but I mean, I was just like I was in choir. So I guess I was just doing a choir thing where apparently I was channeling a prostitute, which is very fitting. I guess you would call that my first acting gig. But at that point, and not for a while, were you actually thinking this was your career path, right? It took a few no. more years. Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, growing up in Louisville, it just wasn't ever a, a possibility or, you know, it would never even enter my mind as a possibility. So it wasn't until I, I was on a on a trip with my mom in New York. We were watching street dancing. This guy said he was a model scout. We were very naive, so we let him take my photo, and he got my mom's number. And And then he said that all these modeling agencies wanted to meet with me, and we were, like, so excited. We just, like, had never even heard of this world. Like, yeah. models? What? <laughs> so we went, and I, I just had decided on the cab ride from the hotel to the agencies that I was only going to sign on to an agency that would let me act. Why did which, that suddenly become a priority for you? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't really say. But it was after that that I read my first script because I was going to audition to play like a soccer player or something. Mm -hmm. And I read my first script and that's like when I got that kind of, like I just, like that I know that yeah. this is what I'm meant to be doing. And so this trip to New York had been intended to be a 
summer long trip or how long? How did no? That- it was just supposed to be a few days. So it was like a spring break. Just get out of Louisville. Yeah. And then I ended up talking about it every single day until the summer, just begging, you know, to just have the chance to be able to be able to audition yeah. in the summer, you know, for anything. And finally, I, you know, like saved up enough money from like babysitting and horses. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going. Yeah. It sounds like your mom was pretty on board, but it took a while to get your dad on board. Yeah. My mom kind of quickly realized how happy it made me because she was there with me. And it's kind of hard. I mean, I I would imagine because she likes me so much, <laughs> you know, to take me away from something that was making me so genuinely happy. And my dad, of course, just didn't get it. You know, she's 14. She's be, be back in school. And when summer's over, we need to go back. So that was the deal. Mm-hmm. I was just going to have summer. And then, of course, I was going to go back to Kentucky and go, go to school. But right before the summer ended, when my dad came to bring us both home, I got a phone call while he was there, like as soon as he got into the door, <laughs> that I got a sitcom in L.A. And this was the Bill Engvall show? Yeah. So let's just set the scene even further for that. You had never had any formal training when you started on that show, right? Yeah. And so did you feel comfortable when you were starting or did you feel like you had a lot to learn? Or had, It seems like, you know, the conclusion now, having had a few years to look at it, is like you're obviously a, a natural if you had no training. But what, at that time, were you feeling a little intimidated by the fact that you hadn't? Of course. I mean, still, I'm still, you know, learning. But no, I mean, I would just listen to the director and if he said do something, you know, I'd try to just do it. Right. And on that one, just to contextualize for anybody who's listening who didn't catch it, it was TBS sitcom. You were the kind of snarky, rebellious daughter. Was that show done in front of a actual audience? or what? It, was, it was, yeah. It was done in front of a live audience. It went on for three years, and it was actually the most amazing gift because I could afford to say no to things. Like I had a steady paycheck, right. which as an actor, you never have. Right. So I was able to do movies that I really cared about on the hiatus. I did my first movie, Poker House, on hiatus for that show. I did Winter's Bone mm-hmm. on a hiatus of that show. You say Poker House as the first, your daughter. And then Burning a, Plane. Then Burning Plane. Yeah. So immediately you're doing kind of dark stuff in films, even though the TV show was comedic. The Poker House, you're playing the daughter of a strung-out prostitute. Burning Plane is another pretty dark one. I accidentally murder my mother. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Kim Basinger. Yeah, and Winter's uh, Bone was a delight. And Winter's Bone, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I guess, was it just increasingly, were you feeling the momentum of one leading into the other? I know with Burning Plane, you, you won an award at Venice Film Festival, the Mastriani Award, but were you feeling like I'm gaining momentum or was it really just one thing after the other until Winter's Bone? It was just one thing after another. I mean, because I was a working actor. I would audition for all sorts of things. Those are just the movies that, I mean, I would love to be able to take credit for it. (laughs) But I I was auditioning for for everything. Those are just the things that I I booked. With Winter's Bone, just to again remind people, because even though you got an Oscar nomination for that, and at that time the second youngest person ever to get a Best Actress nomination, I think that the majority of the people who know and love your work now, it probably was not as widely seen as a lot of other stuff. So I hope mm-hmm. people will go back and check it out. But Reed Dolly, there was this girl you're playing, young girl in the Ozarks who's forced to grow up before her time when, when the father disappears and the mother's mentally ill and you've got all these younger siblings. For you, how did it come about? And it sounds like you actually, in that case, really fought for it. I did. I auditioned in L.A. and they turned me down and I could be remembering this incorrectly, but I think I went back mm-hmm. 
anyway and auditioned again. And then they turned me down. And then they went, they moved casting to New York. And they told my agent, I was, I mean, this is, there is no way of saying this and not sounding like an <laughs> asshole. They told my agent I was too pretty okay, for the part. <laughs> so they they were just like, she's not what, you know, what we're looking for. So I was like, God damn it, yes, I am. <laughs> and so I got on a red eye, flew to New York, showed up to casting again, but this time I hadn't slept and hadn't showered. <laughs> so clearly I was now not pretty, not too pretty. I auditioned for the third time, and I finally beat them down until they hired me. That's great. No, and that one ended up being the turning point. But when you were on the set here, I guess it was Oh, I like, had no idea it you was had a no turning sense. point. I didn't really know anything was a turning I mean, when I got nominated for an Oscar, obviously, that was, I mean, that moment at 5 o'clock in the morning. when Because when I was making the movie, we were just hoping we'd get into Sundance. Right. We were just hoping. There was also, like, we didn't even know, we didn't know if anybody would ever see it. We didn't even know if it would get into one festival. And then all of a sudden at five in the morning, I hear that I'm nominated for an Oscar. So that was huge, mm-hmm. but kind of almost too much to process. Wasn't really, I think, until I got Hunger Games that I was like, oh, I'm going to be like like a legitimate actor. Yeah, doing this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just to further emphasize that point, I don't think you'd even been away from home without your parents prior to Winter's Bone, right? You had just no, turned 18. Winter's Bone was my first movie I did without my parents. And even, you know, homesick kind of situation, right? Yeah, I was very homesick yeah. on that movie. I had to change soaps. <laughs> the smell reminded me. Anyway. So the thing that I think a lot of people responded to in your performance, and I've gone back and reading something Jodie Foster wrote and other people, was that there's actually not a whole lot in the plot that happens. And so, so much of it is just dependent on being lost in, in you and being engaged with what you're doing very quietly. And I wonder if you can pinpoint what you did that, that clicked with people beyond, you know, it's, it's, it obviously got great feedback, but did you turn it up a notch on that one? <laughs> yeah, every movie I decide <laughs> how much effort I should give. No, I, I, didn't, I still didn't really know what I was doing. I still am learning. Each director is an acting coach, is teaching me something. Winter's Bone, I was just learning what it meant, you know, the tact that I had learned from Poker House and Burning Plane, which was just just feel it, mm-hmm. just, you know, empathize and feel it and believe it. Even before the Oscar nomination, I wonder how your life started to change. I interviewed you in October 2010, and I went back and read the transcript, and it was kind of an interesting time capsule because it's just, again, just before the Oscar nomination, right. you've not yet booked Hunger Games or anything. And this is what you said, quote, there is this thing that's kind of started. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like people are looking at you through like a glass wall or something. That's the only way to describe it. I'm like, oh, that person's got the glass now because they'll say things like, oh, but you're still the same gen. And I'm like, well, as soon as you say that, then, then that means that you're not seeing me as the same gen. Like you're seeing me as a brand new gen, close quote. So as this period was... I know exactly what I was talking about. Yeah? As humiliated as I always am to hear quotes I know, I thought back that's a good, uh, from myself. No, because it's way too premature to be talking <laughs> like that. But I remember what I meant. I, I really meant people from home. Because mm-hmm. like, even just when I booked a, a commercial, uh, the idea that I moved to New York, yeah. you know, when I, like, I remember feeling that way from people, from people from home. Like, even just the idea that I moved away to New York and would come back and they'd be like, Oh, you're still the same. Like even if I hadn't booked anything. Right. So by the time the nomination happened, I think you'd already 
had like crazy in the can, I think, because you wouldn't have gone back and done a, such a smaller part, I don't think. It was not. It was great, but it was smaller. No, I, the only reason that I did that was Anton Yelchin and I were really good friends, oh. and he just called me and was like, are you in LA? Like, do you, it was a very last minute. I right. did my own makeup for it. I drove right. to the set. It wasn't, okay, Anton and I on set were talking about whether or not I should do X-Men. Mm-hmm. So that would be after I was, no, it would be before I was not, I don't know. Well, because what it seems like, it seems like regardless of where the nomination fell in this, the result of people responding to you with winner's bone, now you could be strategic about picking what you're going to do, right? It's not just see what you can get. And so the two things that happened, I think, as a result are Jodie Foster's movie, The Beaver, and X-Men First Class. So what was the rationale there for doing these kinds of things? It was just that going a totally different way from winner's bone? Well, for one, I booked X-Men before I ever booked Hunger Games. I did X-Men because it was a job, and I will say, in all honesty, I thought that I was only signing on to one movie, (laughs) and I found out while being in eight hours of body paint that I had signed on to three movies. It ended up being great. I had a great experience. I met amazing people. I met, you know, my first real amazing relationship, Nick. Mm -hmm. So I'm so happy that I did those movies, but I... Thought I was only signing on to one. <laughs> gotcha. Now, 2012, the year after those three, 2011's Like Crazy the Beaver and X Men First Class. 2012, though, I mean, if it, that if that seemed busy, then 2012 you've got First Hunger Games with Gary Ross and Silver Linings with David mm. Russell. You shot Silver Linings first, but Hunger Games came out first. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, how that one. I'm kind of almost surprised that. I don't know there's too many examples of people doing two franchises at once. So I wondered if having been in X-Men already almost precluded the Hunger Games from being an option. Yeah, that was a problem. But I think that the people at Fox were understanding that this was a huge opportunity for an actor. Mm -hmm. And they were nice about that because it was just such a giant opportunity. And also good for... Our franchise, you yeah. know, if I'm going to bring Hunger Games fans to, you know, it's common sense. Scheduling was, of course, a problem. Silver Linings was, I didn't read anything. I didn't, like, read a script. I just remember meeting David on on Skype. And I think it was more just, like, about me and David. I mean, David still to this day is the most important relationship in my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, just my, I, I don't even know how to describe what David is. Mm-hmm. Why did you guys click? On Skype, of all things. I don't know. We clicked. Our humor clicked on Skype. But the relationship that followed is two people that can say absolutely anything to each other. Mm -hmm. We can be so deeply, deeply honest with each other in a way that that creates amazing art. Yeah. And, I mean, I think he would be the first to admit He's not everyone's cup of tea, so I guess no, it's just... <laughs> so it's funny that you guys, I guess the humor was on the same pitch. But yeah. So with Hunger Games, though, you had, just since that came out first, let's do that first, you had read the books already yeah. during like the Winter's Bone period? Well, I mean, you know, when you're like promoting the movie, you're like, oh, I read the books and I love them. I was a fan. <laughs> I mean, I 
I knew that there was a movie, there was a movie brewing. They're going to be looking for somebody. But so I I read the books with the intention of auditioning and hopefully getting the role. But I read them. I loved the books. I think Suzanne Collins, the way that she used her imagination and wielded it to show this ugly side of of society is obviously becomes a theme in my career, but mm-hmm. I loved it. And I thought what Gary Ross did was so interesting. That was the most amazing experience of my life. I, I remember before I said yes, they offered it to me and I took three days, which I think everybody just thought was like some sort of ploy or something. <laughs> but I really knew that my life was going to change after this because Twilight had already come out. We had already seen how famous Kristen Stewart, and Robert Pattinson, gone out for I, I had auditioned for Twilight. Yeah. And we, I had just seen what happened, yeah. you know, with those YA. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that I wanted to say no. All Everything in my body wanted to say yes. I just didn't want to say yes until I really, really, it needed, it really needed to be thought about. Because it's, it will completely change your life. And even now, when I have days where I'm, you know, being followed and I don't want to be followed or I see a picture and everybody's dissecting what I'm wearing. Yeah. And I'm like, I was going to Whole Foods. Like, I, didn't <laughs> add, I don't want, want your opinion on what I'm wearing. <laughs> I always ask myself, do you regret it? Never. Never. I've never regretted doing Hunger Games once. And it's funny because we've had the two Twilight folks on this podcast and they've said that they don't regret doing it. But I I mean, I think that that was the first time, I guess, once even before the movie came out, once you signed on, the first time that you had to start dealing with bullshit, right? Because wasn't, right? I mean, that was what was so insane. People started recognizing me just from being the girl who was cast to be Katniss. And- saying, you know, physically you're not right for it or different things like that right off the bat, right? Yeah. You had a great line that I just have to quickly read back because I think it's great. Quote, I'd rather look a little chubby on camera and look like a person in real life than look great on screen and look like a scarecrow in life. I love how I make it seem like it's my choice. (laughs) Like, like I choose to be this weight. No, I just don't have the discipline to starve myself. Well, all right, you say yes, then the promotion starts in the fall of 2011 when they're getting ready to roll it out movie comes out spring of 2012 what were the biggest things that changed in your day-to-day life my entire life changed overnight my entire world flipped upside down i was driving whole foods which is now becoming a theme in this podcast (laughs) i was driving whole foods and i noticed all these cars going to whole foods too (laughs) like i was looking at my rearview mirror i was like this is weird we're all going the same place and i was in whole foods and i saw these people staring at me and i was like what the hell's going on And I looked and there was just a wall of 25 paparazzi, which you never know how it's going to feel. It Mm -hmm. feels scary. They're not, it's, I don't know, it's a weird, you have to get used to that imposing, you know, feeling. Whole Foods had to call security. Security, like, gets me down into my car. The paparazzi were in the store? Yeah, they were in the store and outside of the glass and they followed me into the garage. And I'm crying. If You you can look at these photos. Mm -hmm. I've seen them before. I was crying. I was just scared. Mm -hmm. I was living with, Justine, I think you know, yeah, is yeah, my best great. friend. And I I tell my best friends all the time, I really don't know what I would be like now and what would have happened to me if every day I came home and they were the exact same. I would look into Justine's eyes at the end of X-Men when she was living with me and everybody was treating me differently and everything was the same. We were still talking about boys. We were still <laughs> tight. We, everything was the same. Right. And I had this consistent love. Thank God. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess the the other side of that coin is that I read about something that happened during the first, during the making of the first Hunger Games, which was that you saw that, I guess it's like the Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility. Here, 
I guess the first time that you realized the positive things that could come with this were, was there a Make-A-Wish visit to the set? Yeah. Yeah, there was a Make-A-Wish visit. And I had up until this point only thought about myself. How is my life going to change when I become famous? I wonder how many clothes I'm going to get for free. And I met a girl who had been burned all over her body. She said, this will still make me cry. And she said that when she read these books, she finally felt proud to be the girl on fire. Like she, she owned it and she was proud of it and she didn't feel embarrassed anymore. And it changed the way that she looked at herself. Sorry. And that was, fuck, sorry. And that was the first time that I realized that it's so simple and, it, and it's something I love doing, but it can actually help people important people you know when I go to um when I go to the hospital at Christmas to sign posters and and visit the the children who can't be home for Christmas it's like you know three hours out of my day that I can go and and it's I, I don't know it's just such a gift that I get to do what I love and with it people who really really matter you can make them feel better you know you can sign something for them and make them feel better or say hello to them and make them feel better so that was the first time i realized that that's great why did you have to go and bring i'm that sorry up? i'm sorry <laughs> i'm so embarrassed <laughs> why it's a very beautiful i don't want to sound like i think that like acting is like you know like you know i'm not saving people from burning buildings i'm not curing cancer i'm just saying it's good when what you love doing like it can have a positive no, I benefit think it's a beautiful thing absolutely okay. David, to now shift over to Silver Linings in the beginning of these three that you've done with him in just four years, just to remind people of how quick the succession was between Silver Linings and American Hustle and Joy with Oscar nominations for each one, the win for the first. He said that he initially was worried you were too young for Silver Linings, and you said you felt you were too young for all three. Yeah, I'm obviously too young for all three. Yeah, I I was way too young. I was way too young to be the widow of a cop. I was was 21. And then I was way too young to be an American Hustle and probably, yeah, too young to be to be Joy as well. But it doesn't really matter. I mean... Yeah, if people believed it, and they yeah, certainly did. Yeah, in the Hunger Games, I certainly didn't look hungry when <laughs> people <laughs> believed it. <laughs> the one, though, that I guess made the other, the, the next two possible, that was obviously Silver Linings. And, and I think David said that he feels there was one moment where it was like before and after. After people see this moment... They're in love with you forever. And that was when you bust in to the family fight about, well, first oh. when Bradley stood you up and right. you show up and you're going <laughs> to, you start taking control of, you tell De Niro See, to sit. For my parents, actually, <laughs> yeah. it's when I run out of the theater. My dad still talks about this when my shoe falls off uh. because it happened naturally. My dad always goes, when you cried and your shoe fell off, my God, that gets me every time. <laughs> Well, it's a Cinderella-esque. But so would you say that with that scene, because it really is you come in and suddenly seize control of the whole situation in that scene, and and it's a turning point in the movie. Was it daunting to you? You're going to be, here's De Niro. There's basically everybody, and it's on you to make it work. No, I mean, that's, thank you, but that's the way it was written. You know, the character goes in and takes over the scene. You know, that's all David's writing. I was just focused on memorizing because I don't know if you remember, but that was a lot of sports teams, a lot of numbers, a lot of stats. (laughs) And I'm not really known for reading my lines before I go to bed. (laughs) 
so I showed up and realized that that was that monologue and that was I, I was only focused on memorization that day. So what's that about, though? Because you you've said before and back in that 2010 interview, you talked about the fact like you basically just wait till you get to the makeup chair to to learn your lines. And yeah. it's working. But I just wonder, is that a, is that deliberate so that you have a sort of spontaneous feel to it doesn't feel too rehearsed or it's just no it's not hmm. deliberate i think that i would really benefit a lot from from <laughs> you know studying harder and giving more effort i just i go home at the end of the day and i watch tv and i don't want to not watch tv <laughs> to, to read my lines and when i'm in right. hair and makeup it's two hours where i have to be sitting there so that's when i might as well do my homework so right. that's just the way it's all that's, that's just funny. the way the cookie crumbles <laughs> did you go into oscar night a expecting to win um, no but I mean, um, there's a whole buildup. We know there's a whole season. You've oh, been winning. Wait, are you it's talking like, about silver linings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Silver oh, lin- silver linings. It, it, here's what I didn't know before right. I went through this whole thing. There is a lead up of so many awards. Right. You know, there's a, there's the SAG Awards, there's Golden Globe. There's, you know, and then you have people along the way going ah, <laughs> like and telling you kind of along the way. Right. That being said, I showed up. I had not prepared a speech, as you can clearly see, <laughs> because I thought that that was presumptuous and bad luck and also probably, along with the line memorizing thing, right. pure laziness. You were up against Jessica Chastain, Emmanuel Riva, this yeah. woman who's in her, I guess, late 80s who had never won. Oh, Jesus All Christ. this stuff, right? So you thought... feel bad? No, no, no. So you... <laughs> well, she's, she's now gone, so... Oh, my God! <laughs> but you were... But I mean, just to... You were up against some formidable competition so you're saying you thought it could have gone another way yeah of course i mean there's always that possibility also the idea of winning is just so gigantic that i don't even think you can't bite it off and chew it so i was just trying to get through the day you know i was just trying to find a dress i was just trying to get there and then when they call your name i actually think it's incredibly unfair to put a (laughs) microphone in somebody's face and say speak after somebody's just said your name in that moment right and then I fell on my face. Well, what was and that forgot. about? How did that happen? <laughs> that was the, the first fabric, of the falls. That was, by the way, right. I, that is my, if I could go back in a time machine and change absolutely anything, I would wear an above the knee dress. But nobody will the, forget uh, that no, you No, I just How, last week tripped going again? upstairs and somebody was like, oh, oh, oh. And oh, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's never going to go away. Right. No, but while I was sitting there, I was like, oh my God, I really do have to right. come up with like some things to say. Right. So I started like, thinking and like, okay, if they call my name, I'll say this. Fell on my face. They're all gone. Didn't remember anything. Didn't thank David O. Russell. Didn't thank the director of the movie. Didn't thank any of the cast. I I think I I wished Emmanuel Riva a happy birthday birthday, and then I just pissed off. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So you go back to doing, among other things, the additional Hunger Game movies. And were they all available even to read when you read the first or you had just read the first, right? At the beginning, when... We talked about you reading them during Winter's Bone. Yeah, they—they, they, I mean, this the books are obviously available. Yeah, um, yeah. The yeah, the scripts become available before each. Okay. Film. So what what struck me as interesting reading for for this was that you started to see some parallels with your own life as each one came in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not to the degree of life and death, but right. to the degree of she feels like she becomes an overnight star, mm-hmm. famous. And everyone was like kind of putting this whole thing on her. And I kind of struggled with imposter syndrome a little bit because people were just so, you know, I don't know, just la la la. What's imposter syndrome? 
Imposter syndrome is just like where you're like, I don't belong here and everybody's lying to me. And you feel <laughs> like you've put the wool over everyone's eyes and then everyone's going to find out that you're a right. huge hack. <laughs> and so I, I don't know. I, I, I felt those similarities. And then on Catching Fire, I'm trying to actually remember the movies because I'm trying to think of the of the parallels, you know, in the, well, and then she becomes, change, right? yeah, relationships change. And then she has this power. So what is she going to do with it? She has everybody listening to her. So what's she going to say? And then ultimately realizes that there's something she can do with this. Yeah. So it's kind of, it was just interesting that, you know, whatever, but over the, the last few weeks we've at our magazine been dealing 24 seven with the, what I am calling the Weinstein Spring because the Arab Spring spread quickly and unexpectedly, and this is going the same. And it's just been unbelievably depressing and relentless and whatever to to deal with, and not that it in any way is like what it must be for the people that dealt with it. But, you know, one of the things that's come up in conversation is what are the biggest stories of, like, this century, 2000 onwards in Hollywood? And it seems like that's certainly going to be very close to the top of the list, maybe the top. And the other would be the fact of and then the response to these hacking things that happened in 2014 with people's personal photos and then also with with Sony's emails, both of which were very damaging and upsetting to a lot of people. Unfortunately, you're one of the people that was touched in some way by all three of these incidents, the two of the hacking and the and Weinstein distributed Silver Linings, and maybe you're not sorry you forgot to thank him <laughs> that night not. at the Oscars. <laughs> but I just wonder, you know, if you can kind of talk through, I guess chronologically, the the hacking things came first, the personal one and then the Sony one where pay and other things came up that involved you. Just how did you process those things as they were coming through? It must have been pretty shitty. Yeah. When the hacking thing happened, it was so unbelievably violating that you can't even put into words. I think that I'm still actually processing when it was happening, when I when I first found out it was happening, my security reached out to me, but it was happening minute to minute. It was almost like a ransom situation where they were releasing new ones every hour or so. And I don't know. I feel like, you know, I got gangbanged by the fucking planet. Like everybody, there's not one person in the world that could, that is not capable of seeing these intimate, you know, photos of me. And like, you can just be at a barbecue and somebody could just like pull up on their phone. And that was like a a really impossible thing to process. And there's not a lot of recourse, right? Because once it's out. No. And I also wasn't interested in it. I know that a lot of women were affected and a lot of them reached out to me about, you know, suing Apple or suing and like none of that was going to really bring me peace. Like none of that was going to bring my nude body back to me and Nick, the person that they were intended for. It wasn't going to bring any of that back. So I wasn't interested in suing everybody. I was just interested in in healing, you know, and I, I mean, just I think like a year and a half ago, somebody said something to me about how I was a good role model for girls and I had to go into the bathroom and sob because I felt like an imposter or I felt like I can't believe somebody still feels that way well, after what happened. I, I know, but it's 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 so many different feelings to process when you've been violated like that. And then the Sony hacking 
happened and you know obviously it was not as as personal but it brought up something that I was not prepared to talk about publicly which was gender discrimination pay gap Mm -hmm. but then it was kind of like well you don't always choose those moments you don't you know like I'm sure all of these women didn't choose this watershed moment for Harvey Weinstein these things they happen and then when they happen you have to respond to them so that happened Mm -hmm. and well, it has been better since then. I mean, it seems like you're not not going to be equally paid going forward. No, I'm not. But you know, it's still it's still a global issue. Yeah, right. And then with Harvey Weinstein, it was just it was bizarre. I, I had heard that he was a dog. I had heard that he was, but he was always almost paternal to me. Mm-hmm. He was never inappropriate with me. Mm-hmm. I thought that we had a nice relationship where when he acted like an asshole. I called him an asshole. <laughs> I th- actually think the word I used was a sadistic monster. <laughs> but it was just never of that nature. So that that was really shocking. Apart from him, I know you've made some references to this in other recent comments, but had you dealt with any remotely similar bullshit to what's been coming out now? Honestly, like, not really. Yeah. I, I, no, I haven't really been, thank it's God. Right I, I, you know. It was really the objectifying of or the you'd talk about this yeah i had been objectified i had been you know obviously not not paid equally i had been violated by a hacker but i but i've never had a man use his power to sexually abuse me in fact it was a female that yeah you had your worst experience with right yeah what was the deal there it was a female that I mean, it was a it was a group decision <laughs> on a particular movie that I was too fat. So it wasn't all the, the, the female, but the female was the one who told me that I had to lose 15 pounds in two weeks. And I was saying, you know, like, I, I, I really don't want to she was like meeting with the trainer. And I was like, look, I don't want I'm going to be naked. Like, I don't want to be skinny, skinny. Like, I'm a woman. I can't not look like a woman. And she was like, well, you need to be skinny, skinny for this film. <laughs> They talked about having like a fat sitter, somebody who was going to live in my apartment and like watch everything I ate. It, it was just crazy, yeah. and it was bullshit. And I think now how early the, this is before Winter's Bone. The, I don't want to give a timeline because okay, I'm right, just not right. interested yeah, yeah, in the yeah, trial yeah. by right, media. Right, right, right. I think it's like really important. I think the people who want to come forward, I think it's so brave. Yeah, for sure. I took care of everything personally on my own, and trust me, they were handled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the the overall choices of projects and things. Has it been a conscious thing that, all right, like every year it seems like there's going to be an indie, at least one, and then there's going to be either an X-Men or a Hunger Games or moving forward now probably a uh, perhaps a comparably big scale thing. You know, there's mm-hmm. the whole Clooney thing, one for me, one for them. Is there any rationale or is this just the way it's worked out? It doesn't even it, – it's kind of the way that it started working out and then it started coming into my consciousness, but – I don't feel like other than one movie, <laughs> I don't feel like it's one for them. I feel like they're all for me. I, I felt very passionately. I, I said yes to Hunger Games for all the reasons that I said yes to an indie. Mm-hmm. Same with Red Sparrow, a big blockbuster yeah. I have coming. I mean, we don't know if it's a blockbuster but yet. The same I'm just saying like a big, yeah, well, yeah Games, same yeah. director of Hunger Games. But the same idea, a very big studio movie. I said yes to it for the same reasons I would for an indie. Yeah. Which primarily, what, you want to work with a filmmaker? I want to work with a filmmaker. I want, really, I mean, it's like, do you want to be this character? Do you want to be, and, and, and also feeling challenged in some way, feeling feeling a little bit scared. And, and there's, there's different reasons to be drawn 
to movies for different reasons. Red Sparrow was the first time that I felt drawn to it to go back to the nude hacking. It was really sexual, which has always scared me. And I've always been like, absolutely no way, especially after what happened. Right. No way am I ever going to do anything, you know, sexual. Mm-hmm. And for me, doing Red Sparrow, I felt like I was getting something back that had been taken from me. You take control of the situation. You are someone who's had very few movies that did not go over well with people, which I think you're batting average. they don't go over (laughs) well, my God. No, well, (laughs) I I, want to really emphasize that because no, I don't think anybody's had a higher batting average at this point and, you know, so early in a career. That being said, if there's two that I think it's not like in dispute, you would have wanted them to go over better. It would have been on a smaller type movie Serena and maybe <laughs> no, and then a bigger movie Passengers. And I just yeah. want to ask as somebody who's now been doing this for a while, are you able to do a postmortem and say here's what, you know, we could have done differently or what didn't click? Yes and no. In a lot of ways it's not healthy. It's done. It happened. Move on. You could say it could make me smarter about the next choices going okay, people didn't respond to that, but people did respond to this. It, does, it never works that way. You read a script, it's a gamble every fucking time. Mm-hmm. Every time. So I take the blame out of myself. I'm like, okay, I, I, I liked it. I read it. I liked it. They didn't like it. Well, and, is it possibly even just something about, I think, you know, the words that from day one with when you became somebody everybody knew, I guess, primarily, let's say, promoting Hunger Games, doing even the characters in Silver Linings, whatever, you know, the, you've heard them a million times. It should be your middle name, like relatable or real <laughs> or whatever. And when you then go in a period piece or something or a, a fantasy world, do you think that that just jars people because that's not what they're... That's interesting. I just wonder. I, don't know. I, I think, I mean, that's an interesting point of view that I hadn't considered. I think that that's what happened with Mother. I think people saw me being soft-spoken and meek and they hated it. They, just nice. Yeah, they were like, I like her better when she's catnip. Um <laughs> And so, you know, I think that, yeah, people do kind of fall in love with this idea. And then when you, you know, but I'm an actor. I I, I can't, I I have to push myself. I have to try as hard as I can to transform. And that that was what scared me about about a franchise is, and also doing too much press Mm -hmm. is people get to know you and then they think they know you and then they can't lose themselves in one of your characters. So I guess... One of my biggest fears has now been confirmed. Well, just well, maybe not though, because what you're saying, like, but it's a thought now to guard against, because there's the inevitable well, for everybody not, the backlash. No, right? no, no. I mean, I mean, you're right. You're probably totally exactly right. There are certain worlds and certain characters that people just aren't going to want to see me in. But I'm not going to stop doing no, that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm I'm not just going to do a, a, <laughs> the same thing. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to Mother. You teed it up perfectly thank you and how did this script come to you and were you given sort of context before you read it or had it read to you or whatever it was because the reason i ask is that you know for an audience that goes in blindly it's a it can be a jarring experience i I don't think any audience member should go in blindly you know darren and i disagree on that constantly i was given allegory before i was given script okay darren had i had been wanting to work with darren for years I think he's such a unique, brilliant talent. So when I heard that he had a project, I was like, I, I want to meet with him right now. And I was shooting Passengers. So he came to Atlanta and he 
he just had ideas kind of floating in his head of of the abuse of Mother Earth and then the idea of what if, of kind of making God of what if he's like a narcissistic artist creating <laughs> these people in his image just to praise him, which is a bold fucking statement. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in, you know, our politics are very are very similar. I, I am one of the rare people who do believe in climate change. <laughs> so it was really important to me. And I also just trusted him. It's kind of like David. David could pitch me, you know, David calls me at three in the morning. He's like, we should make a movie about the woman who invented the miracle mop. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So with Darren, it was the same kind of thing. Like, I, I, I trust him completely. So just do it. He sent me the script. I found it utterly and completely disturbing. But it was a masterpiece. Were there people in your life who read it and said, don't do this? You know, I didn't give it to anybody to read because I knew that they would tell me not to do it. I didn't even tell my agent what the movie was about until we were filming. I actually don't even think anybody knew, anybody on my team really knew until they just kind of saw it. It's kind of like when you're dating that guy that you know is bad for you and you just (laughs) don't want to tell your friends. (laughs) It is really, though, when, when you stop and think about it, it's kind of unbelievable that this was made by a major studio at a time when these guys are only doing Vast, you know, the vast majority of what's coming out of the majors, remakes, sequels, adaptations. It's not like breaking yeah. news. So I don't think this could have gotten made without you. Well, that's nice. I also think that I was in a lot of ways the movie's detriment because I think that if you talk about looking back and thinking, what would I have done differently? The movie should have been released smaller. It shouldn't have. And I think that the reason they released it on, on so many screens was because of me. So... I'm, I kind of made it and broke it. Well, you've said that the experience of making it, though, was very different than what you were used to. I remember, and this is how long ago, I guess it was a very long process from start to finish with this movie, because I was seated next to you at the Oscar nominees luncheon for Joy, which was a while ago, and you were just starting on this, and you were saying that you've never been through anything like this with like three months of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. I think, and again, to come back, you don't want to learn your lines until the day of of mm-hmm. uh, shoot here you're doing three months of yeah. advanced prep was it actually something you enjoyed and benefited from once you tried it that way no it wasn't <laughs> beneficial for me personally it was incredibly beneficial for the movie yeah but no nothing really happened for me i didn't really i didn't find the character until i got into the house until i had the clothes until i had the wardrobe then i found her so it was really just three months of me saying the lines as Jennifer, probably just scaring the shit out of Darren. <laughs> he was like, oh my God, she's going to suck in this movie. So I didn't find the character until we got to Montreal. So for me personally, no. The rehearsal process was strenuous, interesting, fun. It was important. We had to talk about the themes, talk about our characters. We did so much character building. And in a lot of ways, I can't even imagine doing a movie where the actors and the producers and the writer and director don't sit at a table for hours and hours and hours and hours and talk about everything. Because it changed the script a lot. It evolved. Um, yeah, yeah, but acting-wise, no. I, I was checked out. <laughs> so what is it about Darren, who you'd wanted to work with, because I assume you'd liked his earlier movies, he, clearly he gets in partnership with actresses great work out of actresses. Mm-hmm. Ellen Burstyn, Jennifer Connelly, Natalie Portman, Mila Kunis. I don't know if any of them have ever been better than they were mm-hmm. in his movies. You join this group. What is it about him that it makes him a good partner, particularly for, for actresses? He's an amazing communicator, which, you know, comes in handy in the relationship. He's an amazing (laughs) communicator. And he 
is incredibly imaginative. You know, everything he he writes everything. So a lot of it is characters. He's writing these interesting, amazing characters. But I don't know. He has a way of communicating where it's like I I completely, and I think I can speak for the other women. When he says something to you, you completely see it the way he sees it. And you're like, oh, okay, uh, I'll do that. And there's also, there's a, an amount of control that's comforting because you know that he has a vision, he knows what he wants, and he knows what he doesn't want. And then there's also an air of freedom where I know that if I try something, he'll be excited by it, not mad at it, which a lot of people who write do not like you changing right, any, you precious. know, they, they write it, it's precious to them. He's not like that. Just as long as you bring it up, did did you guys get involved during the movie? Because in a way, it, it's a different context in which you watch the movie to when you know that there's now. That. I mean, I I had a crush on him when he pitched to me, and that was <laughs> like a year before we started in rehearsing. Atlanta. Yeah, but he was a professional, <laughs> which only made it worse for me. Right. So we we just kind of formed a friendship. And he knew how I felt. He I, he never told me how he felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assumed, <laughs> but we just we just formed a friendship, and then the friendship turned into a partnership for the movie. Once we started working, and then when the movie was done, I was like, "All right, <laughs> you're my boyfriend." And he was like, "All right, I'm your boyfriend." Okay, fair <laughs> yeah. The movie's last twenty five minutes are insane. Yeah, and I wonder if you can talk about how they were captured and what it was like for you, because the one thing I've read from uh, or the one thing that really kind of blew my mind was just how you've said it kind of messed you up. And you're somebody who I think has taken pride in a way of not allowing roles up to this point to affect you once the shot is over. Mm-hmm. So this would have been very different. Yeah. Well, I don't think I've never done something so devastating. So I think in a lot of ways, I've never demanded something like that from my nervous system. So. I started panicking like a, a, a week before we shot that that scene of me reacting to the death of my baby. And I I mean, I was taking a nap. I thought about it one time and I just got slammed with the feeling because the problem with our kind <laughs> actors is a lot of times, you know, somebody will tell me a story just about their life and I'm like, oh, my God, I can feel it. The empathy, yeah. I don't know. I, I pictured it. I thought about it and the feeling just overtook me and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, I don't know how the fuck I'm going to be able to do the scene. I don't know what I'm going to look like. I've never gone this dark, never demanded this from my body. So I started talking to my assistant. We talked to the producers just because there was going to be 200 extras in the house when I did this scene and I didn't know what was going to happen with Darren Cole cut and I did not want to be surrounded by 200 people not in control of myself. I didn't know what was going to happen. How so, long would the take be? The take went from waking up upstairs in the in, in the office, seeing that my baby's gone, running down the stairs, realizing that the baby's not in his arms, saying, what have you done? And then running through the crowd and watching the baby crowd surf, which is the most disgusting, awful image. And then a cut to where I break through and see that the baby's been killed. So when he called cut, I started crying the week before I started crying by the image of the baby crowd surfing and that loss of control, that overwhelming love for this one thing that you have no control over. That made me start losing my breath. I ended up being okay for that part. And then when we cut and we did the scene where I go in and see when the holy man says, don't worry, his, I don't remember what the line was, but it was basically saying your baby's dead. 
and I started screaming after Darren called cut. I think one time I blacked out. Wow. Another time I just couldn't, I could just couldn't get it together. I, I hyperventilated so hard. I popped a rib, tore a diaphragm, had to go on oxygen. I could not stop sobbing. We couldn't even shoot. I was in the Kardashian tent, <laughs> sobbing, 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 and could not get my shit together. How do you explain it though? Because you. I don't know. I, know mean, that I remember it's Darren. Not. Yeah, that's what Darren, Darren would go, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real. And it's just, you know, when you come out of it, you're like, yeah, you fucking asshole. I know it's not real, <laughs> but I just called forth all of these. I just convinced my body it was real. And so I can't tell my body, never mind, you know. So getting out of those clothes and getting out of the blood and taking the wig off and getting back into my, my own clothes changed my mindset completely. And I could go home, but I, I didn't sleep that night because my adrenals kept going like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just to, in case anyone's wondering what the Kardashian tent is that you referenced. Oh, right. I just assumed everyone knew that I have a Kardashian tent everywhere I go. I um I when I was worried about my mental state right. on the day, I I tried to create a happy place. So mm-hmm. we made a tent where the Kardashians were playing in a loop and there were pictures of the Kardashians everywhere and there were gumballs. I'm a huge gumball <laughs> fan. <laughs> yeah. Turns out did not work. No, no. I guess there really was nowhere to hide though, because by one count, you're in close up for sixty six of hundred and twenty one of these yeah. minutes. So I'd read one thing where somebody was saying, you should do theater, you'd be great. And I think you said that it's different in the sense that, quote, theater is vocal and physical and film is all eyes and subtlety. That I can do, close quote. And so here, though, I mean, that much of it, though, even must be daunting, even for somebody who kind of understands and feels somewhat confident about about the idea of the close up. But that much of it? Yeah, it it was tricky because, you know, you you have to like momentarily in it. Every time you're acting, no matter where the camera is, you're making yourself believe a certain scenario for a certain amount of time while also seeing things that are very much not a part of this reality. You know, cameras, guys, booms, dudes breathing, you know, DP staring at you like this. And so you're used to incorporating all of that. It doesn't matter. It's a feeling. But it was hard because a lot of the shots, sometimes they were so close that I couldn't make eye contact with the actors. And that was that was tough for me. Watching this, I I was wondering, having gone in without the nature content, I had no idea. I just saw it at Toronto Film Festival, and I was trying to figure it out. And one thing that occurred to me is if perhaps it might have also been applicable to celebrity in the sense that you're building something in the house, the career, whatever. Then before you know it or can do anything about it, you're overrun. It's not necessarily what you signed up for, but you've got this. People are taking what they want, whether or not you want to give it, and certainly to an extreme in a few cases in your life, disrespecting some other people in your life. You know, it's like in this case, you're the kind of ignored woman for part of it, but could just as easily be somebody else. Never have a moment's peace in in a lot of ways, even inside your own home. Is it insane to think that that's also? It's what's insane is that that never occurred to us. You had four celebrities, (laughs) you know, sitting around a table all day, every day. Right talking about the allegories, talking about the metaphors, and not once did any of us go, this is kind of like a metaphor for fame. Right. Not once. But the movie, wor- it works on every level. David O. Russell was just saying this to me the other day. He was just like, even, he was like, <laughs> he was 
remarking on how the way the way that I was selling it. He was like, even you like shut up in the way that you're selling it. Like it doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be Mother Earth. It doesn't have. It works. It works on every level. It doesn't. It can be a relationship movie. It can be a climate movie. It can be a so it's really just kind of a personal. Now that I look at it, I can see that I can see that kind of everybody feels entitled. You know, that's the biggest thing I think that's on my mind just with fame is the thing that I notice the most is how entitled people feel. They feel just entitled to everything. So that I kind of see, but to compare the two would be, I mean, an actor can't do that. Like that's, <laughs> you can't, right. you can't look at mother and then be like, that's what it's like to be famous. <laughs> you mentioned Redbird. Which is Red Sparrow. Excuse me, Red Sparrow. Um, uh. Now I'm going to call it Red Bird. I'm going to be on a press tour calling it Red Bird now. Thanks. Which is, I guess, next year. I know you've got the thing with Amy Schumer that you guys have co-written. The Spielberg, the Adam McKay. There's a lot of exciting things coming up. So I wonder what you can just kind of tease about what's next. I know you've you've said you want to direct. I don't know know, if that's... I was really thinking in the car right over here, like, I have got to fucking work soon. What the fuck am I going to do next? (laughs) So thanks for asking that question. It's been keeping me up at night. I don't know what I'm going to do next. The Amy movie's not ready. Right. It's not going to be ready for a couple years because of everybody's schedules. Right. The Spielberg movie's not ready. You know, a lot of this is dependent on other people's schedules. You know, I mean, I'm just waiting for David to just call me in the middle of the night. That's what I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. If there was some way, I don't know, you've got some great hair and makeup people or whatever, You, if you could be totally anonymous again for a day, what would you do? I mean, I would just, I would just like go probably, I mean, if I was in New York, I'd definitely take the subway so yeah. I wouldn't have to Uber. That would be amazing <laughs> to be able to take the subway and right. get somewhere in 15 minutes. But I also don't want it to seem like, I don't have like that extreme of a, le- I really can get around. I don't really travel with security everywhere I go. If I'm going to the airport, I do, but... On my day-to-day life, I don't have security, and I normally can move around just fine without really getting recognized. And when I'm recognized, I'm like, hey, can I get a picture? No. You know, I, it's not really that dramatic. Right. It's not like what I would imagine, like, I don't know, and Lady Gaga's friends, friends as like, we, we Britney know. Britney Spears somebody. 2008. It's not right, like that. Right, right. What well, did you say about No, friends? I was saying you have normal friends that aren't necessarily in the No, no, no. Yeah, my way. best friends have nothing to do with the business. Right. But one of my best friends is Emma Stone, who I guess you could say is in the business. (laughs) Stop name dropping. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.